When we share someone's story here on The Diaries, the episode might end, but their story doesn't. So many of the people we've talked to, they've gone on to do incredible things. They have epic adventures and make significant impacts in our community. Over on Diaries Plus, we're catching up with some of our former guests to see what they've been up to. I recently sat down with Connor Ryan, a Lakota professional skier from our Sacred Slopes episode, who's been knocking out groundbreaking projects ever since the episode aired. It's really incredible. We had a great discussion about the impacts he's made, what keeps his fire burning, and taking ski lessons as a pro skier. Here's a snippet of the conversation. All the source of joy that I use to fill my cup to be out in the world doing positive things comes from my relationship to the outdoors. And so I really focused on like, wow, like there's so much power if I can give one person the relationship to the outdoors that that I have through skiing. And maybe that will have as profound of an effect on them as it's had on me. To listen to the full episode, use the link in the show notes to subscribe to Diaries Plus today. Yeah, you get more shows, but you also have a peace of mind of powering what's out there right now, keeping us moving forward, keeping this community together. So thank you for everyone who supported and everyone who's going to support. We appreciate it. Cord, do you know what the deep end theory is? Have you ever heard of that? Uh, no. Is it is it like throwing a kid into the deep end so they learn to swim faster? Yeah. I mean, yes, they're, they're right. It's this idea of that if you want to learn something, if you want to progress quickly, if you want to reach a level of competency quite quickly, is that you put somebody in the deep end. That you mm-hmm. get thrown in or you throw yourself in the deep end and you go from there. And there are totally it's like, like language immersion. Exactly. 100%. Mm-hmm. Like that idea. It, we see that all across all sorts of different um, applications, you know, language, mm-hmm. uh, mountain climbing. Um, and we've got a story today about this sort of like idea of diving into the into the deep end, of, of just going mm-hmm. full commitment. And mm-hmm. um, I think it's, it's a fascinating thing because I remember one of our first team members um, at the Dirtbag Diary, Duct Tape and Beer, Dirtbag Diaries, um, was a was a really really talented guy um, on a lot of levels. He was really good at editing and really good at visual stuff, and and um, you know was a really good at photography. And he he was with us for a while, and then he you know eventually came to me and says like, "Hey, I, I really want to go out. And I want to go travel. I want to do all these things." And and we're like, "I think you'd be great at that." And and he asked, we're "Like, well, how how do do you have a tips for me to how I can become a." like a photographer and make a living doing it. And mm-hmm. I remember sitting down to him and just being like, well, do you have a credit card? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, well, go max it out and go start doing trips and go start <laughs> taking exceptional photos. And it'll probably work out, you know? Mm-hmm. And and I remember, he, you know, I got to know his family. And at some point his mom was like, you gave my son the worst advice ever. <laughs> and I remember like looking at her and, and, and I like was like, well, it worked out. And she's like, it worked out, you know. And like, mm-hmm. it was this this um, funny moment. But part of it was that level of just of not asking for permission to become something. Mm. And stories like that are powerful, and they're really mm-hmm. cool. And it's not to say that there aren't other ways to be successful, but that's one way. 
and it creates some good stories sometimes. Well, today we have a story for you guys about landscape painting and the charm of somebody who dove into the deep end, both in the outdoors and with his career. So we're very excited to share his story with you guys today. I'm Fitz Cajal. I'm Cordelia Zars. You're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. And remember kids, max out those credit cards. Elizabeth and I were up in Northern California on a trip and we went for a day hike in the Trinity Alps. This is Will Sudo. He's talking about a trip he took with his wife last summer in 2020. Here's Elizabeth. First we saw a rattlesnake and kept hiking. And then we saw a huge backpack and these 10 foot canvases sticking out of the backpack. So I was confused about how the huge backpack and the canvases were on the middle of the trail, and nobody was near it. Baffled, Will and Elizabeth hiked around the pack and kept moving up the trail. After another few miles, they came upon something even more bizarre. We came across this old man who was laying on the ground next to two giant backpacks that were strapped with art, canvases and paints and paint supplies and all kinds of camping supplies. He had these crazy packs that were like army surplus from like World War One, just old, like the craziest, oldest frame packs I've ever seen. I've never seen anything like it. And they were all mended with bailing wire and duct tape. So we started talking to him and it turns out he was uh, double packing all this art supplies down from the mountains. He was by himself. He had these two giant packs and he was just shuttling them. And I asked him what, I, what he'd been up to. He said, oh, I've been up, up in the mountains uh, painting. I said, oh, cool. Like how, how long were you up there? And he said, a month. I was like, a month? <laughs> and he'd been up there all by himself for an entire month. Uh, with all this art supplies, just painting and living. And uh, he looked like a cross between John Muir and Vincent Van Gogh, just mountain man with a little bit of crazy artist thing going on. But he was just filthy. He'd been in the mountains by himself for a month and, you know, double packing 200 pounds worth of art supplies down the mountain. So he was just dirty and his hair was all matted and he smelled like a goat. But you you could just see, just looking at it, he's had this incredible trip and he's got that kind of elated, exhausted sort of vibe that you get at the end of a massive trip like that. Will and Elizabeth offered to help this older man, they learned his name was Ken, haul his packs back to the parking lot. I was carrying this crazy old backpack with like 10 foot tall stretch canvases. I was getting snagged in trees and stuff because this thing was so tall and it was just brutally heavy. It probably weighed like 80 pounds. Mm. We just slogged it out and I got to talk to him a bunch and I was just uh, 
struck by how interesting of a guy he was. Just We had just this super rambling sort of trail discussion where we talked about books and literature and philosophy and life experiences and wilderness trips. And he was telling me how he'd done a bunch of trips like this up into the Trinity Alps, anywhere from a couple weeks to several months, you know, spending a whole season, a whole summer basically up there painting and winter trips that he had made up there, just sort of like a, a like a localized John Muir sort of wanderer, but would always pack all this art supplies and just hang out in one place for a long time. Several months ago, I got an Instagram message from Elizabeth. It was a photo of a post-it note with the name Ken and a phone number scrawled in black ink. You gotta call this guy, she said. I forgot about it for a while. I mean, I didn't even know the guy's last name. And then my curiosity got the best of me, and I picked up the phone. Yeah, hi, this is Ken. Uh, I can't answer the phone right now. I'm busy trying to figure it out. I go ahead and leave a message. I'll find you somewhere. Thanks a lot. I left a message. Weeks passed. Nothing. I crossed Ken's name off my list of possible story leads and moved on. And then out of the blue, about three weeks after I had originally called, a 707 number popped up on my screen. So I answered. And this scratchy, wizened voice on the other end told me his name. Ken Jarboa is uh, my name. Uh, Humboldt County, California. It's the northwest coast, just south of the Oregon border. I nearly jumped out of my chair. You're the guy, the sticky note guy. Elizabeth had told me essentially nothing about him, other than that he was a painter, and they had met him on a trail in California. So I started doing the wonderful thing I get to do for my job, asking questions. I started with where he grew up and how he got into painting. 1958, I think it was, it was a long time that I was born, and uh, lived there till I was 18. Ken grew up just over the hill from where he lives now, in Sunny Bray, California. Right after he finished high school, he went on a backpacking trip with his cousin into the Trinity Alps, just east of Sunny Bray. He'd never been up to the Trinity Alps. I'd only been up there a couple times. Really nice mountains. Go up to 9,000 feet. It's, it's the real deal. Granite, glaciated. Anyway, so we go up there and, uh, and he's got this drawing pad. We're sitting in camp and he's drawing this little outcrop of this rock. And I'm thinking... He's got a camera. What in the world would he be drawing for? So I said, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm just drawing so I can take something home and show Nancy where I've been, his girlfriend. And I thought, man, that is a cool idea. That's what I want to do is hike around the mountains because there was a lot of places I hadn't been yet. And I knew there was, you know, I was going to be doing that for a while. But to do artwork along the way is It's just goes hand in hand. Ken's cousin let him borrow his sketch pad. He gazed into a grove of mountain hemlocks and drew what met his eye. As his hand moved across the page, something clicked. And I realized that is the perfect combination, hiking and drawing and and doing art. And that really, 
got me going. It was like, okay, I want to be an artist, a painter. It's going to take me a while. Well, actually, at first, I thought, I'm not going to be able to handle color, but I'll just be as good as I can at black and white. In that moment, pencil in hand, Ken felt like he could see into his future. I could see a bunch of time that I could spend doing that and, and knowing, too, that, you know, I don't even know how to do this. It would take some time to be able to pull that off. When Ken got back home, he bought some simple art supplies, pencils, ink washes, everything in black and white. Inspired by his trip to the Trinity Alps, Ken worked on honing his sketches over the next year. And I'm glad I did it that way because it really teaches you values and Hmm. tones. When I started doing color, it wasn't so bad. It seems like a lot of people might think uh, that blue is darker than red. Mm-hmm. And that's not close to the case. It can be the opposite, but it's the values, the tones, and that, you know, to get depth and atmosphere. Ken made weekend trips up to the Trinity Alps over the next several years as he attended College of the Redwoods in Eureka, California. He took an intro drawing class, and his teacher encouraged him to continue making art from what he loved and knew best. Once he'd gotten the hang of drawing, Ken bought a case of watercolors and headed back into the mountains. Because I really like capturing distance and being up in the mountains, you know, you can see a long ways away. Lots of lakes and meadows and things, seven, eight thousand feet, great trees. It's just, oh, it's just spectacular. And uh, Mount Shasta, just east of there, that's a very nice mountain. But the Trinity Alps mainly. I would have to say that's uh, the main inspiration for doing art or even living. After college, in his mid-20s, Ken took a trip up to the Trinities with his good friend Steve, who he'd known since the fifth grade. We went up to a place called Morris Lake. Great place, just beautiful. We're sitting up there in October, and there were these flocks of pine siskins, little birds. They must be related to finches. But they're seed eaters. But these flocks of 100 to 200 of them would fly around. And they'd land in a tree, a mountain hemlock. And as soon as they landed, and it was uh, morning, so the, the sun was behind them, all of the seeds would disperse out of the cones. As soon as the flock hit the tree, just, oh, it was just beautiful. It was a great trip. But we were uh, sitting there talking and thinking how nice it would be to spend the winter up here. And so we thought, next winter, let's give it a go. Let's see if we can do it. And we planned it. We were going to spend the whole winter up there. God, we had all kinds of plans. <laughs> but uh, but my friend, he couldn't, he couldn't make it in the end. He got a girlfriend and a logging job. <laughs> <laughs> but instead of bagging the trip, Ken decided he would do it anyway, alone. And I didn't realize <laughs> what it would take. But I, you know, I, I planned it and, okay, narrowed things down. I thought, okay, not the whole winter, but I'll go for three months. And uh, I think I had two months to prepare at that point, except I hadn't told my dad. <laughs> Eventually, Ken did tell his dad, who reluctantly supported him 
and passed the news along to the rest of the family. My uncle was a real character. He said, well, you know, Kenny, the only difference between you and the Darner party is you won't have anybody to eat. Ken wrangled his 1980s backcountry essentials. Tarps, pots and pans, fuel, pocket knives and matches. He bought several new sketch pads, pencils and watercolors to take with him too. Ken even managed to sell a couple of sponsorships to friends and family. By tossing in a few hundred dollars, they could take their pick of his paintings once he got home. He chose a spot in the Trinity Alps where he would set up camp about six miles into the backcountry a place called the Siligo Meadows. It's a clearing below the alpine zone at about 7,400 feet, where Ken felt sure he'd stay safe from avalanche danger once the snow began to fall. He prepared enough food, gear, and paint supplies to last him three months in the backcountry, from late September to Christmas. Boy, the time comes, you know, you feel great. You feel like an explorer already. You haven't even left town. And you got all the gear and, you know, everybody's, oh, wow, you're going to have a good time. Oh, yes. Yeah, the last couple of days and especially the evening before, oh, the, it was scary. Like, man, what have I gotten myself into? I'm not going to see anybody for a long time. Almost like walking a gangplank and the whole town saying goodbye to you. <laughs> In a way, it, it inspires you to pull it off. You don't want to just get up there and chicken out and say, well, I'm Getting kind of tired of this. I miss home. In the last week of September 1985, a few friends drove Ken to the trailhead and helped him hike six backpacks of food and art supplies up to the Siligo Meadows. My friends started calling me Siligo Slim. <laughs> That's, <amazing. laughs> That's a pretty good nickname. As Ken and his friends hiked, the wind started howling, and the clouds opened up and poured down on them. As they gained elevation, the rain turned to snow. When they arrived in the meadows, Ken cleared a spot on the snowy forest floor to build his shelter. There was a, a rock that was about maybe six feet high. It was flat on one side. And I leaned some poles up next to it and then put a tarp over that. And so it was pretty roomy. I couldn't really stand up in it, but I didn't spend a lot of time in there. Once they'd helped him get settled into his new mountain home, Ken's friends shouldered their packs to head back down the trail. The first feeling when someone says, okay, well, we'll see you. Have a good time. And they turn around and go away. There is a silence that comes over you, and you turn around, and you go, oh, my God. I'm I'm in for it. And you look at the amount of food you have, and you think, it's going to take a long time to eat that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) All of that food. I think I had five five gallon buckets worth of food. After his first night alone in the shelter, Ken pulled back the tarp to find that a little more snow had fallen in the dark. It snowed three feet right away at the end of <laughs> September. But it, it didn't snow after that, and it melted gradually. It was just, oh, it was fantastic. There was, 
one morning where it was clearing off and the blue sky and the clouds kind of tearing off the peaks, the snow was like laundry detergent, just the lightest stuff. And, I, and that was the first time I'd experienced something like that. After the snow melted, Ken laced up his hiking boots and started to explore the nearby valleys and crags. He'd tote along his brushes and find spots in the high country to sit for a few hours and paint the view. I had all kinds of supplies, watercolors is what I painted back then. And after about nine or 10 days, your short-term memory is not of town anymore. It's of that. You know, you, you hear jets going over once in a while, but really there's, there's nothing except the stuff you have to remind you that it's modern times. It was, you know, before cell phones or anything like that. It was like, well, town is gone like a hat down the river. You see it floating away. There it goes. <laughs> it's a stunning realization. And, and then you start hearing things like the needles falling out of the fir trees, just the slightest tinkle almost like a a fairy rain or something it's just amazing and you start noticing things that you never would have noticed before when you're by yourself you've got a lot of time to just look and study things and hearing things there there was one time i was i was painting and i was sitting there and what the heck is that noise that sounds like something kind of coming through the woods there a little bit you know i'm a little bit of a chicken when it comes to camping out in the dark by yourself we get a little bit used to that but i'm going where is that noise coming from and i realized it was my shirt crinkling as i was breathing yeah or or you get you know maybe a booger sideways in your nose and that sounds like screaming banshees (laughs) 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 yeah After a few weeks, Ken got into a rhythm. He'd wake up, journal with a cup of coffee, watch the birds, and then pack up his paints and trek to a new basin, canyon, or crag. Time is so much different. You don't have a clock, you know, no watch. There's shadows, and you become very familiar with that. But then, you know, I'd go off and uh, paint something. I, I probably did two or three paintings a day when the weather was good. I had a little uh, wooden easel thing that would kind of clamp down on the paper. Once you get on a roll of painting, it's, it is like you have free license to be part of the mountains. It's an odd feeling. There was times when I'd go off probably three miles away from camp and paint for the day. And coming back, you know, there might be some sketchy areas, some loose rocks. And, you know, you don't want to get an injury up there or anything. So you're kind of careful. But with a couple of paintings on your back, you felt invincible. Maybe it's a sense of pride or a sense of going through the same kind of distress and discomfort that the trees and things have to, and the birds up there and the animals, the things they have to do. As Ken rounded his first month alone in the Trinity Alps, he began to feel the prickle of loneliness. It was 
terrifying. For one thing, I was afraid it was going to get the best of me and I would leave. I'd have dreams of town at night, very vivid dreams, seeing friends. Oh, God, how was it? Oh, well, it was great. But I'd feel real disappointed that I had chickened out and went home. And I'd wake up in the morning and go, oh, thank God, that was just a dream. Trickling streams sounded like conversations between friends. The shadows dancing under moving leaves looked like human shapes on the forest floor. Even the birds started to sound like dinner guests. Oh, at first, man, you, oh, look at this food. I got chocolate bars, I got cashews, I got all this stuff. Well, when you run out of that, you only eat to restore calories. There's no, there's no joy in it. In the preparation of the eating, it's just, okay, I need to eat. As far as crackers or bread or anything, that was gone. But I had pancake mix. And it, it was pretty good. You know, it was instant stuff. I thought, well, I need to, some bread. I'm going to put some salami on that. It wasn't very bad. <laughs> yeah, it didn't go very well. <laughs> there are some uh, birds up there, the nut hatches. And they go, well, it sounded like they were laughing at me for choking down this terrible food. (laughs) Shut up, you guys. You eat bugs. What do you have to say? (laughs) Through the lonely weeks, Ken continued to journal every morning before he ventured out to paint. I had him read one of his entries from early October. Long afternoon shadows are the first of twilight, sunset on the meadow. As if the colored grass needed more color, the sun and sky oblige. The still meadow pools reflect bright blue sky while autumn grass, like fiery beams, arc in from all around, each blade casting a long shadow on another, dashing the ground into magic. Birds out for a final look at the food situation, Found an old worn hawk feather. Birds carry treasures on their backs, magic feathers that reflect the heavens. All doubts and loneliness are put to rest at this day's end, as beautiful and special as any on record. Despite the ebbs and flows of loneliness, Ken stuck to his routine and kept developing his watercolor skills. He had never taken a painting class, but the mountains proved teacher enough for a lifetime. One painting I did, I was down in the woods. There was some avalanche damage in the forest. Anyway, that's what I was going to paint. And I got down and went, oh, that's pretty, that's not too bad. But wait, I didn't paint the blue sky. I'd forgotten to do the sky, so it was just white paper. But I realized that's much better that way because it's that brightness. When you're in the woods and you look up and you see the bits of of sky through the branches, they are bright white. Even a blue sky, you're you're not going to see much color in that. So that taught me to paint what you see, not so much what you think it should be. He learned after dozens of paintings to lightly pencil before he painted so that he could easily erase without scrubbing the pigment off the paper. On one cool morning, he noticed that the paint was freezing in the shadow of his easel. Wow. So I tilted the whole thing into the shade, and instantly these wings of ice went across the whole sky and and froze the watercolor. I thought, wow, man, well, that's going to wreck it. But the thing is, 
the ice sublimates, it evaporates. And so it leaves its marks on there. It's almost like a magnet where you get the little metal filings. The mm -hmm. sediments in the paint line up with these ice crystals. And when they evaporate, they are pristine. It, it looks like ice crystals on there. So that it's like uh, having nature be, you know, have a hand with a brush there or something. I think it was the first trip that I realized what it is to be a professional painter. I realized, okay, this is how you, you got to, you know, you're a painter and you observe things and, you know, okay, so let's see, where is the best place to get that angle? What time of day would be better? Oh, it, it just becomes such a, such a lifestyle. It's like your, your job is, is your, your love. It made me realize that this is what I'm, going to strive to do someday make a living at this where i can do this more often it really is hard to describe but that feeling of well it's it's a lot like love well it is love it's probably a lot like religion is for some that it just is uh, it's it's very meaty and it's everything it's it's what it's like air that you breathe It's like air that you breathe. After the break, Ken prepares for winter in the mountains. Stay with us. Support for the diaries comes from Ketone IQ. As I've been getting more and more into longer runs and bike rides, I found myself fighting with my mind. As the miles extend, I feel like my reactions get slower and I make more mistakes, like tripping or falling or just kind of feeling slightly out of sync descending on the bike. On those big days, I've been using Ketone IQ to help my brain keep fueled and sharp. I want to have fun, not bonk. Here's the science. Ketones already exist in your body. When you push up against your boundaries, your body begins to convert stored fat into ketones, which your brain prefers consuming. With Ketone IQ, I feed my brain so my muscles can use the glucose I get from whatever else I eat on the trail. Riders of the Tour de France have been taking the same approach. I am definitely not as fast, but I can apply the same thinking. Give it a try. You save 30% off your first subscription order at ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. Once again, that's ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. The link is in the show notes. Please check it out. In early November, about five weeks into his trip, the days began to shorten. Ken awoke to frost most mornings and watched his breath hang in white clouds over his sleeping bag at night. Ken knew that soon the snow would fall. He began pondering how he would hike all of his gear and paintings down the mountain at the end of his trip through feet of powder. He had a pocket knife and a lot of time, so he decided to get started carving a sled from a log near his camp. Well, I was carving on the runner there. The knife slipped and bang, right into my hand. Oh, right on the inside of the thumb. And it went deep. And I thought, oh, no, what did I do? And I, so I went for the first aid kit. Immediately, both hands went numb. And I, I was in some sort of shock. Hmm. And I was trying to calm myself down. Look at it. Okay, it's bad. Uh, did it go all the way to the bone? Did I cut tendons? Should I go out and get help? 
And that's one thing about being by yourself. What you don't have is anybody to bounce things off of. So I just had my own self there. So I figured, all right, I'm going to hike out, go to uh, the nearest town, which was about 25 miles away. They have a clinic there. And I uh, have them sew it up and I'll just come back up here. Ken took a few deep breaths and hiked up the pass toward the trail that would lead him back down to the road. And I got right to the pass and the shoulder strap on my pack broke. Oh, man. So here I got this hand that hurts and I got it all bandaged up. I can't really use it. Fixing this dang shoulder strap. Okay, here we go. I went about 100 feet and the hip strap broke. And I'm thinking, what in the heck now? Is something trying to tell me that I don't need to do this? But Ken studied his bleeding hand again and decided it needed to be stitched up. Otherwise, it might not heal. So he finished the hike out, reached the road, and hitchhiked a ride about 20 miles to the nearest clinic. And they're taking my blood pressure. And I remembered that up there in the mountains the night before, I dreamt of a nurse taking my blood pressure. Hmm. And so it was like a deja vu, a premonition thing or something. And the contrast between all the dirt and smells that I had in this pristine, clean (laughs) area, it was really a con. I'd never seen that before. The nurses stitched up Ken's thumb. He called a friend from the hospital phone who offered to pick him up, bring some food, and drive him back to the trailhead at night. After offering Ken some highly appreciated fresh avocados and scones, Ken's friend dropped him back at the trailhead around 2 a.m. Ken slept by the side of the road until about 5 a.m. when it started to rain. So he got up, loaded his pack, and hit the trail. I'm thinking, okay, I'll go a ways and I'll start a fire and I'll be able to to hang out for the day in the the rain because I didn't have hardly any gear with me. So I started it and I couldn't get the fire going. Okay, I'm just going to just power it. I'm just going to go back up there. And it got to where I started to hallucinate that the trail, it was just pouring rain by then and blowing, it was probably 35 degrees and gusts of 35. And the trail was gluing me down, the mud on it and the wetness. And my hand looked dead on my walking stick. And my other hand that I'd injured was just kind of hanging there. And yeah, only a couple times have I gotten to that point where I think it's... uh, what marathon runners call the wall or something where you don't think you're not sure you're going to make it there's doubt and that's doubt about something pretty serious <laughs> you know you can doubt whether you're going to pass a test or something but whether or not you actually going to make it but cold and wet ken finally made it back to his camp i put on these dirty clothes but they were dry and they never felt so good and I think I slept for about 16 hours. But the storm didn't abate. The next night in camp, the winds blew so fiercely that they began tearing the grommets out of Ken's tarp. In the middle of the night, Ken shoved a flashlight in his mouth and tried to tie the tarp down with one hand as it flapped in the screeching wind. When the weather finally did clear, Ken made it about another week and a half in the backcountry 
before he realized that with his injured hand, he needed to head home. He couldn't paint as well anymore, and every camp routine became arduous and frustrating. So he packed up camp, took a last longing look at the Siligo Meadows, and hit the trail. And I'm going down the trail, and I just started about a mile down the trail, and I looked, and oh God, here comes my good friend hiking up the trail. He was about a quarter of a mile away, and he'd come up to visit, and he brought cookies. So Ken turned around and headed back to camp with his friend for a few last nights in the backcountry. Here's another excerpt from Ken's journal. This is quite an experience of rejuvenation, and the mountains gleam with renewed beauty. Proof that solitude and loneliness were my biggest displeasures, our conversation wears them away. To celebrate our good fortune, we head up for the craggiest portion of the Gibson Spires, trying for the wildest gully, too steep for rocks to collect, but not so for the adequate footing. A surprisingly easy climb to the top, looking down on gnarled bluffs and pinnacles. Below on the steep base is a granite dike 10 feet high that is eroded into a nice thin arch. Steve brings a scornful plea that I not leave the harmony of the wilderness, that civilization is as money-oriented as ever, and I would be disappointed with my return. At this point, though, I need the contrast and contact with family and friends that will greatly enjoy these last couple of days. After 54 days in the Trinity Alps, Ken hiked with Steve back to the road in mid-November with about 50 paintings, a torn tarp, empty buckets of food, and a lifetime of memories. Over the next three and a half decades, Ken kept painting and returned to the Trinity Alps year after year to find new inspiration for his canvases. 10 or 15 years after his first solo trip, he transitioned from watercolor to acrylic paint and continued his backpacking tradition, now hauling huge canvases, a wooden easel, and a whole box of paints miles into the backcountry. In addition to the Trinity Alps, He's also painted scenes from his favorite landscapes in Yosemite, the Redwoods, the Mad River, and many others. After years of hard work and dedication, Ken was finally able to quit his day job and support himself fully on his art. Today, Ken has a gallery in Healdsburg, California, where dozens of his paintings are displayed and sold. He's in his 60s now, but still gets into the backcountry every year with his easel. When Will and Elizabeth bumped into him last summer, he was coming off a 29-day solo trip in the Trinities. He hasn't updated his gear much since the 80s and exudes the kind of legendary mystique to stop hikers in their tracks and then pass along the story of how they met a gifted painter in the Alpine Zone. Now I know why Elizabeth sent me his number. Near the end of our call, I asked Ken if he had any advice for aspiring painters. He said, start with blind contour drawing, just a pencil on paper, not looking down, just at the scene in front of your eyes. 90% of painting is done without a brush in your hand. And I, I really feel like a lot of what I'm able to do or, or put into a painting comes from just observing. And you, you, you learn that way. You're just the vehicle between 
your eyesight, the paper, and and the actual scene. Yeah, blind contour drawing. And I also would, you know, for painting or whatever, uh, would suggest to start with black and white. And don't even worry about color. And it, the color is so much easier later. But yeah, learning the values and drawing a lot. And if you draw or paint what you love, there's no problem practicing that. Plus, you know more about that subject than you would say if you're going to do a series of ashtrays. You don't know much about ashtrays. Well, it's going to be a little bit, a little bit of separation there. But if you're drawing something you love, something you know, it is so comes out so much more powerfully. So that's that's key. But I think uh, art is doing anything that you love. When Ken thinks back on what painting has meant to him over the years, it boils down to something pretty simple: gratitude. It's almost like we have this individual little slot of time that we're that we're given to observe or something. It's almost like uh, we are nature's chance to see itself. Because it seems like everything that we see is beauty. Seeing things as beauty, I think, is, is really a, a chord what a human being is made for. Thank you, Ken, for sharing your story. Currently, Ken's hard at work on a project in the Redwoods and just finished an indoor mural for a local inn. I'd highly recommend checking out his Facebook page, Ken Jarvella, J-A-R-V-E-L-A. I like things spelled out. You can see photos of his work there. It's truly incredible. Our stories come from friends, from friends of friends, and from you, our community. If you have a compelling idea for a guest or a story lead, please give us a shout. That's how we found this one. You can use the submission form on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. Or call Cordelia directly. <laughs> Not just kidding. Music today from John Barry, Bradley Carter, Ken Christensen, Kai Engel, and Brennan O'Connell. The tracks are courtesy of the artists or Free Music Archive. Jacob Bain and Nice Cotto composed our theme song. You can find links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Cordelia Zars, with additional production help from Ashley Langholz and Becca Cajal. Illustration by Walker Call, graphics by Anya Miller. Becca Call is our executive producer. I'm Fitz Call, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in.